So given the fact that we are in uh, Great Commission Week, I thought for uh, Monday Chapel we would do something on, on the Great Commission, but I didn't want to do Matthew 28. So I thought about this idea of talking about cross-cultural communication and uh, looking at that in two ways. Um, cross-cultural, obviously, the kind of the more plain sense of that, the idea of us crossing cultures, right, to communicate with other people, but also in the sense of cross-cultural, about bringing the cross to other cultures, bringing the gospel to other cultures. And so as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, what text really in Scripture stands out most for this? But Acts 2. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read about this story that might be very familiar to most of you. What we're going to do is we're going to break this down a little bit. Um, My left-hand side over here... I want you guys to read verses 1 through 3. Right-hand side over here, verses 4 through 6. The middle, you guys are going to read verses 7 through 8. And I took it upon myself to read the more difficult verses because of all the the places and geography and everything too. So I'll read verses 9 through 13. So let's go ahead and begin. Left side, verses 1 through 3. When the day of... Right side. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, uh, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So, if you have your own Bibles, I want you to write a little text note here, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but uh, I want to read us, have us all read this together. Let's do this together. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here's the thing. Pentecost, I believe, is really starting to see that fulfillment of Jesus' words here, the idea of the harvest being plentiful, but the laborers are few. And what do I mean by that? Well, Pentecost itself, you have to understand, was a harvest festival. Okay? It was 50 days after Passover, 
It went by various names such as Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest, and Feast of First Fruits. It was a time when the barley harvest was done and the wheat harvest was beginning. It was literally a Thanksgiving festival, okay? And this was one of three times that Jews made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this. And I don't think it's just by mere coincidence that at a literal harvest festival, we see a birthday miracle begin. We see the birth of the church happen. And if you think back through the Gospels, you might remember even Jesus using very similar harvest types of themes in his teachings and parables, especially wheat, right? And how that is all connected with this idea of the harvest field and going out and making disciples and what have you. And what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is we see the disciples who are now those harvest workers going out and begin to go into that harvest field. Um, If you will, just real quickly, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Turn back to that. This is what I refer to as sort of the little commissioning. Uh, Most of us don't uh, think about this when when we think about the idea of the Great Commission. We think, obviously, of Matthew 28. But at the same time that Matthew 28 is going on, at the ascension of Jesus, Jesus also says these words to him. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's really cool is if you want to understand sort of the format of Acts, just look at verse 8. Because we see that Holy Spirit come in Acts chapter 2, right? In Jerusalem, as all those Jews are gathered together. But as you start reading through Acts, you see the spreading out of going to Judea and to Samaria, and obviously then to the ends of the earth, which at that time was the Roman Empire. Okay? So we start to see that fulfillment going on there. We also want to talk about, though, um, Old Testament connections in regards to what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. Genesis chapter 10 and and chapter 11 have some bearing on looking at Acts chapter 2. Genesis chapter 10, real quickly, uh, describes God who is um, uh, creating the nations. This is the 70 nations that are put together. And what we see then in Genesis chapter 11 is those 70 nations, those people who are gathered together in rebellion against God. This is the story that you might be familiar with from Sunday school, right? This is the Tower of Babel story. So I want us to read that together. And so today on the screen I have where it says all, that's all y'all. And where it says pastor, that'll be me, okay? And then again, all, all y'all. So we'll start off with you. Let's begin. Now the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So, the story of Pentecost pulls in these stories of Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. And let me flesh that out a little bit more for you here. In the Tower of Babel story, as I already talked about, we know that this is humanity that's gathered together under a common cause. And it's not a good cause. Humanity is gathered together in rebellion against God. The tower, sorry, that's kind of dark there. The tower, most likely that was being built there, is what was known as a ziggurat. Okay? These were found all throughout ancient Mesopotamia. Um, these were literally, in one sense, uh, stairways to heaven, if you will, with how they were built. One of the things you have to understand about the ancient religions is that they considered mountains to be sacred places. Okay? They considered mountains to be sacred places, places where the divine came to meet humankind. Now, we do see this in the scriptures, by the way, what comes to mind real quickly? What story? Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. We can also talk about the various mount experiences in the New Testament, right? Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus also, Sermon on the Mount. We can talk about Mount Calvary too as well. And then also Matthew 28, he is on a mountain, right? These are, these are important things that we have to pay attention to. Um, in regards to pagan religion, think about Greek mythology. Where do the gods reside? Olympus, right? Mount Olympus. Now, what does this have to do with ziggurats? Ziggurats were considered to be man-made mountains. They made them as places in order to connect with the divine. Now, here's the thing about the Babel story. We tend to get this wrong. We think that Babel was all about them building a stairway to heaven in order for humankind to reach up to God. That's actually not what's going on. Rather, in the ancient world, they built these man-made mountains, these ziggurats, in order to bring God down to them. Okay? They viewed it as a portal, as a place where the gods could come and visit them. And so what we see here is that in the story of Babel, is that they have a skewed concept of God in which they sought to recreate or to remake God in their own sinful image. So it's interesting that God actually does come down, right? But he comes down in judgment upon them, and God knows that if you let sin run amok, just go back to Genesis chapter 6, right? All kinds of horrible things will happen in society, so God confuses their language and disperses them. And we should view, by the way, that God... Um, confusing their language and dispersing them as an act of mercy. An act of mercy. Now, let's talk about what this means in regards to Acts chapter 2. If you look back at Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we see all the description of all the Jews from those various nations. You could pencil in there, by the way, Genesis chapter 10. Because those 70 nations, and we don't have time really to kind of cash this out and see how this all connects together, but that's what we see is those 70 nations are there, gathered in Jerusalem, all right? 
And yet we also see a great reversal going on with Babel. Because we also see there how God, through the Holy Spirit, right, speaks in their own languages to the different people. The Holy Spirit brings a redemptive message of Christ Jesus into their own language. And in doing so, God is uniting the nations under his common cause, under Christ. And this reminds me, by the way, of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I'm going to read that real quickly for you, okay? Um, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Rather than humanity building stairways and temples to bring God down to them and therefore create God in their own sinful image, God comes down to us in Christ Jesus and takes on our sinful image. And in so doing, as Paul says, seeks to redeem humanity and builds us into a holy temple. And in building us a holy temple, we have access to God in Christ, and also others then have access to Christ through us, through us. One final note of application here, as you kind of ruminate and think on that. I think it's interesting that just like in those first disciples that God brought the nations to them, God's still doing that to us today, brothers and sisters. Look at Irvine. Look at our own campus. The harvest field is out there. And the awesome thing is that we get to gather and hear together as that united, redeemed people of God to be filled and fed by the word and then to go out into the harvest field. Let's pray. Lord of the harvest, the harvest is indeed plentiful. I pray that you will send us out in the harvest field. May we ever be so bold in our witness to our neighbors, to those who sit next to us in class, to those who live across from us in our halls, to those whom we teach and whom we interact with in our offices. By your spirit, let your gospel be always on our lips, ever ready to be shared with those whom you bring into our midst. For the sake of Christ, we pray together. Amen.